Our scripture passage this morning is Genesis chapter 14. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 18. Nineteen. Eighteen, nineteen, same part of the Bible. Before we read, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, bless the reading and preaching of your word. May this word, Lord, be written on our hearts. May we know the wonder and the glory and the might of Jesus Christ, our warrior, priest, king, who through his life and his death and his resurrection has conquered the enemy of Satan, has freed us from the tyranny of the devil, and has called us to be soldiers in this war by his power and strength. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma. Shemember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shava Kirithaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Sair, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites, who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eschol and Anir, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he rooted them pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. 
He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anir, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. It can be said that uh, what we're reading about here is war. War between kings. Five kings against four kings. A dispute over tribute and who owes who what. And this is a reality that we find in the scriptures. And it's a reality that actually influenced the way that the Israelites viewed their coming Messiah. He was to be a conquering king. One who would go to battle, to war. In fact, if you read uh, John the Baptist, who is the preparer of, of Jesus' ministry, the one who paved the way. In chapter 3 of Matthew, verses 11 through 12, you get the idea that John saw the coming Messiah as this conquering warrior king. John told people who came to him, I baptize you with water for repentance but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The axe is at the roots. Judgment is coming for this warrior battle king. Jesus. In fact, that might have been so much a part of John's idea of who the Christ was that later when he was in prison, he began to have doubts about whether Christ was the one. And as he was in prison before Herod beheaded him, he sent his followers to Jesus to ask him, are you the one? Are you the one that we're waiting for? Or should we wait for another? I've been watching you and you don't seem to be gathering your troops. You don't seem to be putting uh, weapons together and, and beginning to uh, amass an army. And so he, they came and asked Jesus, what is it that you've come to do? Are you the one that we should be waiting for? This is how Jesus replied. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. What is Jesus trying to tell John about? It's something that is going to give us a clear understanding of what's happening in our passage this morning in Genesis. Jesus is saying, I am that warrior, battle king, spoken of in the Old Testament. But what you don't understand is that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And Jesus says that the battle has moved to its source, the heart, from the physical to the spiritual. (coughs) I have come to conquer sin, the devil. There's one key similarity, though. Both in wars that are blessed by God and battles that are blessed by God is that the battle belongs to the Lord. And so this morning our theme is that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We have three points this morning. The first is kings of this world. The second is rescue out of this world. And the third is kings not of this world, or king, not of this world. Let's start with the first point. About the first 12 verses of Genesis chapter 14 is one of those passages of Scripture where you realize you don't know how to pronounce names. And I promise, I tried to figure out how to say Kedor Leomir many times and I hope I did okay, but yeah, there's a lot there. And, and uh, some people think that, that the beginning of Genesis 14 is sort of an interjection to the story. But the history that Moses is giving us here in Genesis 14, the first section of this understanding of these kings battling against these kings, gives us the context for why Lot... Abram's nephew is captured and carried away, and the reason why Abram has to go after him, okay? So the context that we're given is that these kings, these five kings, Amraphel, Arioch, Kedorlaomer, Tidal, were going to war against Bera, Bersha, Shinab, Shemember, and the king of Bela. And the reason why is that for 12 years, they had been subject to Kedor Laomir. These four kings in the land were subject to Kedor Laomir. They were uh, in a treaty with him, and they had to offer tribute to him. So if you look later in the history of Israel, uh, the history of uh, Israel, uh, oftentimes they were subject to other kings, and they would have to send money or send payment or send taxes or whatever it may be. And so these four kings, uh, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of uh, Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, they're, they're tired of, of offering this tribute. They're done with it. They've done it for 12 years, and they're not going to do it. 
And what's frightening about uh, these kings who are mad because they aren't receiving their tribute anymore is we're told that as they're traveling to the valley of Siddam where they're going to enter into this battle, that these kings and those allied with them, Kedor Leomir and the, uh, the kings allied with them, as they traveled, they defeated the Raphites, the Zuzites, the Emites, the Kirathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir. So this uh, group of people is often associated with uh, large people like Goliath. And so the idea is there's this massive force, this army that is traveling across to punish these kings who have rebelled against them that they were once in a treaty with, that they once had to pay tribute to. And as they're going, they're destroying all these mighty, powerful people. And finally, they come. They come to the valley of Siddam. And there on the valley of Siddam, we see the five kings and their troops against the four kings. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Abma, the king of Zeboiim, the king of Bela. They marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sindom against Kedorlaomir, Tidal, Amraphel, Arioch, four kings against five. And you can get the sense that even though it's four kings against five, and the five kings are the ones that are trying to protect their land and no longer have to send tribute to these four kings, that these four kings have an army that is massive, it's destructive, it's powerful, it's the kings of this world. They're coming because they desire to inhabit, they desire to possess the more, the merrier. And as they're marching along, they're taking every part of this world that they can grab as they're going to this battle. And you get the sense as you read this dispute between kings of this world, of the fleshly nature, the worldly nature of this, of this battle, the worldly nature of this conflict. There really is no people that you're rooting for in this battle. These are people fallen in sin, corrupt. But we're told the battle does not go well for those who are in the land of Canaan. This valley of Sidon was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. And so these uh, five kings scatter, the five kings of the land of Canaan, they scatter. And so these four kings moved in and they seized the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their food. And, the, and, and then what happens also is that we read that we read that Lot has fallen under the sway of these worldly perspectives and desires. Because we read at the end of Genesis 13 that Lot chose a particular part of the land, right? A good-looking part of the land, but we're told that's where Sodom and Gomorrah are. And Sodom and Gomorrah represent that evil that's in this world, corruption that's in this world. And, and, and so we, told that Lot, we were told that Lot pin, pinched, uh, pit, pitched his tents 
there next to, to Sodom. And so he's close to Sodom, but he's, he's living outside of Sodom. But what do we read in verse 12? They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. And so what you see here is the natural result of living too close to the world. The natural result of mixing in your priorities with the priorities of the world. Getting tangled up with the kings of this world. In the battles of this world. In the wars of this world. You get carried away. You become a slave. Like Lot and his family and everything that he had. He chose to put his lot in the world. And what he got was being swept off as a prisoner of war. As I was studying, somebody said, you know what would be a really good sermon title for these, these passages? Genesis 13. Abraham has a lot to lose. Genesis 14. Abraham has a lot to gain. Here's Lot. The nephew of Abraham. He's been swept off with the world. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what's going to be Abraham's response? And that's when we turn to our second point, rescue out of this world. We're told that somebody escaped from the battle and came to Abram the Hebrew. This is an interesting note that we hear him called Abram the Hebrew. It's the first time that someone is called Hebrew in the Bible. And um, the association is most likely with his descendant, Eber. And we are told, just as we are told at the end of Genesis 13, that Abram is living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eskel and Anir, all of whom were allied with Abram. And and so when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. See, this is another time, an opportunity, where we are seeing the contrast between Lot and Abram. There are times when we see expressions of Abraham's lack of faith, his walking according to the flesh and not by the Spirit, but this is not one of those times. Because you see, the truth is, Abram said, this is my brother, flesh of my flesh, this is my relative. The question we have to ask ourselves is, how would we respond to a situation? Like this. We see a brother or sister who is playing with fire, and we know the warning that Proverbs says you play with fire, you get burned. We see a brother or sister 
beginning to uh, tease with the world and the ways of this world. Maybe at first they just pitched their tents outside of Sodom, but now we're told they're living in Sodom. And we hear that something tragic occurs in their life. Carried away as a prisoner of war, whatever it may be. And we say to ourselves, well, the Lord's punishing them. Hopefully they will uh, wake up out of their situation. Well, they got what they deserved. Play with fire, get burned. Or, well, I'll pray for them. But you see, that's not what Abram does. He doesn't say, well, he chose the land. I gave him the opportunity to pick what he wanted to pick. And he picked that land, and so he's got to deal with it. That's what he chose. Maybe this will grow him up a bit. He hears that his nephew, his kinsman, his blood has been carried off because he chose to put himself in with the kings of this world and the ways of this world. And the response he has is he gets up and he goes after them and he rescues him. Out of the world. Three hundred and eighteen trained men against the armies of four kings who already beat the five kings who are in the land of Canaan, and who along the way already beat and destroyed a bunch of giants. He recovered Lot and all that he had. Pursued them, attacked them, rooted them. You see, in this moment, Abram is being a man of faith. Walking according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. But in another sense, he is a picture for us of the heart of Christ. You see, if it was God's perspective that he looked down upon all of us in our sin and in our brokenness, all of us who have decided to live in the city of destruction, Sodom, who now live there and walk amongst his peoples and who have thrown our lot in with the kings of this world, If it was God's perspective that he would look down upon us and say, well, that's what they chose, so they deserve it and they got to live with it. We would not have salvation. We would not have redemption. We would not have grace. We would not have mercy. Some of the greatest words in the Bible Or while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. Some of the greatest words of the Bible are that while we were enemies, Christ rescued us out of this world. God delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And God did that in Christ. God didn't come when we had faith. He came in Christ when we lived in Sodom. When we were carried off as prisoners of war by the kings of this world. And in Jesus Christ, he went to the cross, put to shame the powers of darkness. And openly mocked Satan and all his minions. And rescued us out of this world. Just like Abram went to battle and rescued his nephew Lot. That is a wondrous salvation. This is a battle blessed by the Lord. And as much like Gideon and his 300 men going against thousands and thousands and thousands so that this battle's glory could be given to God alone. So that we could have this story that paints for us a very early picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of our rescue out of this world. What about the kings not of this world? You see, after the battle, Abram returned from defeating Kedor Laomir and the kings allied with him. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva. That is the king's valley. And what we have here is a, a contrast. There's the king of Sodom. And here's Melchizedek, king of Salem. And who is it that Abram is going to uh, honor? Who is it that Abram is going to, to, uh, to appreciate? Who is it that Abram is going to throw his lot in with, so to speak? Where well, we see that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And we're told that he was priest of El Gabor, God most high. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands. They were told that Abram gave him a tenth of everything. There are two passages besides Genesis 14 where Melchizedek is mentioned. One is Psalm 110. And there we read that God makes the king of Israel a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It is the psalm that we sang this morning. The Lord unto his Christ has said. And the second place that this Melchizedek character comes into 
uh, and to seem, is in the book of Hebrews, where there the author of Hebrews likens Christ's priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And the reason why he says Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek is because Christ is not a descendant of Levi. He is a descendant of the tribe of Judah, the line of David. And no priest ever came from there, but also because uh, typically in the Old Testament there was a separation between the kingly duty and the priestly duty. But here we see in Melchizedek these united together. Uh, we see that Abram honors Melchizedek as a worshiper of the same God that he worships, God Most High. He's the king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And Melchizedek offers Abram a blessing, a blessing which Abram receives, and an honor that Abram gives to Melchizedek is that he gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he has. And in this giving of a tenth of everything that he has, the author of the book of Hebrews says that Levi, who's still in the loins of Abram, is expressing that the priesthood of Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood of the Levites. And so here, Christ is likened to this Melchizedek who has no beginning of days, no end of days, who pops into the story of redemptive history for a moment and then is gone as a model for the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the King Priest, Jesus, who in Psalm 110, David looks at and says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. This Melchizedek is a representative of God. He is a king that is not of this world. And Abram defers to Melchizedek. Abram honors Melchizedek. Abram gives Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth. And receives the blessing that Melchizedek gives him. But the king of Sodom, the king of this world, said to Abram, give me the people, you keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said, I've raised my hand to the Lord. I've made an oath to God Most High, the same name of God that Melchizedek used, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. Abram says, I will not be associated at all with the kings of this world. I will not even touch anything that belongs to you. I will receive nothing from your hand so that you could not look and say, I'm the one that made Abram rich. I'm associated with Abram, the Hebrew now. No, I wait for my inheritance from the Lord. The very land that you live in now, king of Sodom, belongs to me, but it's God who will give it to me, not you. See, there's a response 
that we are called to have to the reality that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's a desire to be free from the reign of the kings of this world as we have been in Christ and to not use our freedom as an opportunity to indulge in the flesh but to use it as an opportunity to live for Christ who is the priest king and prophet. A king who said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not captured like the kingdoms of this world are captured. We do not live by the sword. We live by the sword of the spirit. We do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the principalities, the powers, the kingdoms of darkness. We fight against sin, the corruption of the heart. We fight lies with truth. We fight wickedness with righteousness. We turn evil with good. Which ways will we follow? Will we give in to the king of Sodom, receive from him a blessing, an inheritance that lasts only for this small, finite moment? Or will we defer and wait for the inheritance that we will receive from the king who is not of this world? How do we live in this life as those who have been delivered from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ? How do we live? Thankfulness and gratitude. We live the way the Jude calls us to live. In the book of Jude, where we read, Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. We live like the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, putting on all the armor of God. That we may stand waiting for a king to come.
We live in all gratitude and thankfulness to Jesus Christ, who is that powerful king who rescued us out of this world and brought us into his kingdom. And we desire to live in accordance with that kingdom. But we do it all, not in our own strength or in our own might, but with the declaration that the battle belongs to the Lord, that He is the one who ensures our victory, that He is the one who delivers us from our enemies, who delivers our enemies into our hands. He is the one who in Jesus Christ has delivered us and continues to deliver us. That whole verse from Colossians, our theme statement for this morning, ends with this. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that in Jesus Christ we have been delivered. We pray that we would live as those who have been delivered. That we would use our freedom to live for you and not for the flesh. To walk in accordance with the Spirit that has been poured out on us and dwells within us. May you fill us with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. We pray, Lord, that you would help us in our battle against the world, the flesh, the devil. By the strength of Jesus Christ, working in us. Conquering us so that we may surrender even more in our heart and our minds to the kingdom that awaits us. That is now at work within us and will one day come fully in all that we see around us. We ask this and pray that you'd answer it for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.